Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number 4. If you're just joining us for the first time this week, thank you so much for being with us. It's our delight to have you as our guest, and we're grateful. We really, really are. I don't, I don't say that lightly. That's not a throwaway phrase. It really is our joy to have you with us. And if you haven't let us know who you are, maybe you would take that envelope and take this opportunity to do that. Name, maybe an email address or phone number, just so I could follow up with you to see how I might pray for you and encourage you. Whether you make it back or not, it would be my joy to do that. Last week, we looked at the opportunity, really. That's kind of the three phases that we look at this encounter of the woman at the well, Jesus giving living water. So the opportunity and, and how Jesus um, went places others wouldn't go and did things others wouldn't do and reached people that others wouldn't reach. Now, he is God incarnate in the flesh, knows all things, so obviously he's at the right place at the right time, right? But there are things that we can learn as believers, even as we watch gospel encounters happen right in front of our eyes in the text of God's Word. Last week, the opportunity. This week, the encounter between the two of them. Next week, the results. That's kind of the stage, if you're wondering why the three different sermons on the text here. That was um, one of our takeaways. That first bite that we took last week was that Jesus, knowing all things, was exactly where he needed to be. It's a rich and rewarding and transformational text that we see in front of us as John allows us to peek in and see what's happening with Jesus and the woman at the well. Some of the scenes John covers in his gospel, he covers them in summary form. That's the way the Holy Spirit had him write them down. Others he covers in great detail. All of the Bible is profitable. The Bible tells us of itself, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But remember, John told us specifically that the gospel of John, he kind of gave us the spoiler alert, if you will. He said in John 20, 31, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. A little bit of the, boy, this is a fun word. I didn't know until I got to Bible school. But the, the way that you understand, the way the Bible is laid out and studied, uh, I remember early on in my Christian life, I didn't know what a hermeneutic was. I just said, who is that? Is he here? Let me go shake his hand. I missed him. But that, that is just the framework of Scripture and the way it all plays out. And so one of the things you learn about this is John is contending with two factions of people in his writing. Those that deny that Jesus is divinity. And so you see the scripture laced with that in John's gospel. He seems to present the gospel as a proof text that Jesus is in, Christ, in fact the son of God. And then you've got those that were not convinced that Jesus was flesh. That somehow he was not truly man. Well, John's take is that he's truly God and truly man. He got tired just like we get tired and finds himself at the opportunity of this encounter. There's implicit and explicit truth that we see here as Jesus preaches the kingdom. There's a feast for the believer as we journey through what sometimes are simple texts but are rewarding and beautiful texts. Hopefully, 
All of the Bible draws us closer to God to worship Him better, (laughs) to love Him more deeply. If God is seeking worshipers, surely every Sunday and every text and every chance we have to study God's Word, our doctrine, our theology, ought to make us better worshipers. Amen? Today we're going to look more carefully at the exchange between Jesus and this woman We're going to see the Son of God describe the kind of worship that honors the Father, and we're going to lean in together at all the ages and stages in the room. Let's pray. Father, take this text today and do what only you can do. From the newest Christian to the most seasoned saint in here, God, I pray that we would feast on your word, Lord, and most of all, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. We ask these things in that name that is above every name and by your power. Let the church say amen. We're going to see how simple salvation really is as he talks to the woman. We're going to see Jesus describe the true and only way to approach the Father. Let me just encourage you. um, I have a header out to the side of my Bible, Bible that says Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Now, that's not inspired text. It's just a note there to help guide you through the text. Isn't it interesting that this passage uh, doesn't name the Samaritan woman? And yet it's 40-some verses about this exchange. What does that tell you? She is not the main attraction of the encounter. We're going to focus on Jesus. Let's recall the scene. Jesus is at Jacob's well. He meets this non-Jewish woman at a well. I don't know if when we encounter that in the first week, if some of your Old Testament little bells were going off in your head and you're thinking about some of the encounters that had happened at wells uh, in previous days. In fact, Isaac, through his father's servant, uh, was introduced to his wife at a well. Jacob met his wife at a well. Moses meets his wife at a well. Those that follow Jesus, the Bible describes that we are the bride of Christ. Now, Jesus didn't marry the Samaritan woman, of course, but it's a sense that he is engaging part of his bride at a well. And just kind of for all you Bible nerds out there, it's even Jacob's well. It's a great throwback, isn't it? It's beautiful. All of these Old Testament winks point us back to the prophecies in the Old Testament that salvation would come through the Jewish people, but not only for the Jewish people. That Gentiles, that's us, most of us in the room, though there are a few exceptions in the room, uh, that's the Gentiles would be able to be a part of God's family because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, it's just so incredible. Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 49, the word picture that's used for those outside of the Jewish community coming into right relationship with God. Watch these words. The word is that the nations would, here's the word, flow to Zion's hill. That's a picture of where God dwells. Later, we'll see the Samaritans come in in verse 30, and they will be streaming toward Jesus. All right, now let's just do a little uh, Q&A here. What flows and streams? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it kind of, it all fits together, doesn't it? It's just beautiful how the Lord makes these things come to pass. Um, That's an explanation. 
as we approach the text, but what's an application even before we get into the text today? How do we get to uh, translating that into something for our own lives? Well, it should remind us as we study God's word that God's will is perfect. God's will is perfect. I've heard it said before. What, what is God's will really? God's will is exactly what you would choose for your life if you could see what God saw and knew what God knew. God's will is perfect. God's plan works. Doing things God's way is always the right way to do things. Uh, God will do what he said he would do. Amen? God is faithful to keep his word. He said the Gentiles would stream in and thank God they did. It's so interesting that he chooses to reveal himself as Messiah. And he did that rarely actually using those words in his early ministry. But here he is doing it not to a big group of Jewish folk, but to a group of what the Jewish people refer to as half-breeds. That's just a picture of the grace of God. Uh, lastly, just a quick application before we even get into the points of today's text. You can trust the Lord. Even when you don't understand what's going on in front of you, even when you can't make sense of how the Lord is working, even when everything seems to take a left turn, God is at work. It is His will that people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will one day stand before the throne room and lift praises and call Jesus the King of glory. We can trust that God is at work. Let's dive in and grab some headers for this morning's text. The first thing I would have you to write down this morning is that Jesus shows us new life. He's showing new life to the Samaritan woman. He's going to do that in verses 13 and 14. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Think about that. He's, he's talking to her at a well where she's getting water to meet her physical need, and he's talking about something far more than a physical need. Now, we see her work through that in her head and process that in real time, but, but Jesus is, is calling her to think beyond the here and now. I, I mean, he's going to have to completely transform this woman for her to even understand what he's talking about when it comes to living water. She didn't know her greatest need. She didn't know who Jesus was. You know what? That describes all of us before we came to Christ. We were confused about who God is. We were confused about what we really needed out of life. We would try anything and everything to quench that thirst that was deep in our soul until we found the river of life. Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, saying that he had tried all kinds of things to quench his thirst. He said, I, I didn't keep anything from me. Whatever my eyes desired, I got I, I didn't keep any pleasure from me. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon tried everything. C.S. Lewis calls it the ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. It's you just can't get enough and it never satisfies. Look at those words. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. I think the woman fits the bill with five husbands. 
She certainly tried giving marriage a try. Yeah? Can we agree with that? Okay. Jesus, though, wants to get her beyond that. He wants her to see her truest and deepest need, her truest and deepest thirst. He's got to reveal that to her. You don't come to that by yourself. He's got to reveal that to her so that she will desire the living water that he will offer. Now, next week, I'm going to spend some time talking about the connection of the living water that Jesus is promising to the Holy Spirit. It actually shows up prophesied in Ezekiel and other places in the Old Testament. We're going to nerd out a little bit next week on some of that stuff, okay? It's going to be fun. But make sure that you're here next week for the third um, part of this three-parter here. Jesus wants her to understand that he can give her something that she needs more than anything she desires. To experience this new life, though, Jesus has to deal with her sin. Second point this morning, Jesus has to deal with sin. Yesterday morning at our men's time together where we uh, feasted like kings and prayed like servants, we called on God and we worked through the Acts model of praying, not A-X-E. We, we didn't throw anything at the walls. And don't worry, we, we didn't do that yet. Although we talked about that. That did come up. The ACTS, the Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication model of prayer. It's a wonderful framework for worship and prayer. When we came to confession, I, we stopped for a moment and said, what's the big deal about sin? Is sin really a big deal? And I asked the question, what does God really think about sin? The answer is quite simple, and it doesn't take a degree to figure it out. He hates it so much that he sent his son to stand in the gap and poured his wrath out on his son so that you and I might stand forgiven. God hates sin because sin destroys everything. Jesus has to deal with sin. He's so loving, so kind, so good, so right, so just, but so holy that he has to deal with sin. And this may take an uncomfortable turn for some of us, but Jesus says to her as he seeks the conversation, he's presented to her the offer of life, and now he's got to confront her sin. He says, go call your husband. You remember the text. She says, I have no husband. He said, you're right. That's an accurate statement. You, you should be in politics. No, he didn't say that. Like you, you, you have said something that's factually correct, but not entirely truthful. But uh, he says, go call your husband. No, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your own. She had sought fulfillment. He's trying to bring it to the surface. She had that ever-increasing appetite for things with ever-diminishing returns. She had sought fulfillment and identity in the arms of man after man after man after man after man. And she had tried and failed at covenant-keeping on her own. Did you notice that? The covenant of marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. She had tried on her own works to do this thing on her own, and it kept blowing up in her face. Sadly, she had earned the reputation that she had in the community. I heard a comedian the other day saying um, he thinks he might be addicted to sugar. And somebody said, why do you think you might be addicted to sugar? He said, well, I had a whole bag of Sour Patch Kids. 
I'm like, ah, oh, you know, Sour Patch Kids. A, he said, no, 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 family size bag. And it was after I'd had a half gallon of ice cream at night. I said, yeah, I think you had a problem. He said, I'm trying to get diabetes the old fashioned way. I want to earn it. <laughs> she had earned her reputation. And Jesus knew every detail about her past failures. And he still met her at the well and wanted to point her to living water. He loved her so much that he couldn't leave her in her sin. Now verse 19 feels abrupt. And, and a lot of commentators have written about this and I'm, listen, they're, they've got more degrees than a thermometer, so I'm not gonna argue with them, but I'm going to just present a possible uh, two sides to this coin, okay? Let's look at 19 on the board together. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now some incredibly sound Bible teachers, pastors, and, and commentators have written that this might be the woman changing gears on him, right? He's confronted her in her sin, and that's uncomfortable, and she goes, um, this is a picture I had when I would heard this preacher, okay? Like, you're a sinner, you need saving. And she goes, um, so you're a preacher, huh? Like it feels like she's changing the subject, right? It feels like she's avoiding confessing sin. But Jesus is dealing with her sin still in this moment. You see, it, the context of it, when you study a little bit around what's going on in the day, you find out that it's typical um, it, for Samaritans as well as the Jews at that time to believe that a prophet that had come from God would be given special insight into people's situations. That was not an uncommon thing. That was a popularly held belief. It was a normal way to operate. If somebody said something incredibly insightful that it seemed like only God could have known, it was a reasonable response for this person to say, um, so are you a prophet? So he's... The expression would be, he's kind of ringing your bell here and she gets that something divine could be happening. The other side of it is this, right? Her sin made her uncomfortable and she tries to change the topic. It doesn't take away from anything, but I wanted to give you that cultural reality of this as you're reading this passage. Um, God is clearly at work in her heart, pointing her to the fact that Jesus is different than other men, truly God and truly man. And then she moves, this is why I know the Lord's at work in her heart, because she then changes gears, it looks like, but she moves from her sin to her approach to God. Do you catch that in the text? Look at the flow. She moves right into that. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews worship on that mountain. What do we do? How do we approach God? If she's to love the Lord and have no other gods before him, she's getting conflicting information about how to worship God. There were conflicting views on worship for her. Aren't you glad all that's settled and there are no conflicting views on worship in 2023? Like it's all clear. There's so much information out there on who God is and, and how to approach God. And, and we, we want to make it... Uh, so palatable and bring God down to where we are. No, God wants to transform us to get us to where he is. And it takes a divine work to do it. 
She didn't know who to worship. She didn't know where to worship. And she didn't know how to worship. But she was talking to one that could point her to the truth. Amen? Jesus showed her new life. Jesus dealt with her sin. And now Jesus will lead her to true worship. It's a beautiful thing. Verses 21 through 24. I'm not going to read that whole passage for us this morning. But in 21 through 24, he says, woman, look. We worship up there. The Jews worship because the temple is in Jerusalem. The only faith, let me unpack it for you, that God will accept is actually faith that came through the Jewish people. Do you catch that? The Bible is of Jewish origin. Our Savior was a Jew, not American. The first Christians were Jews. Only those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit and obey the truth can worship God acceptably. And then I want to touch this lightning rod of a verse this morning in John 4, 24. It's a popular verse. I love it and quote it a lot and, and it means a lot to me. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, just again for context, cultural context, for Jesus to say God is spirit. Remember what I told you about the Samaritans last week. They worship God, but they also worship false idols. They mixed in some things. Syncretism, we see that today. We see people serving two masters, three masters, 25 masters. You just name it. Uh, we see people divided today in what true worship of the true and living God looks like. God is spirit, the, the Greek pantheon of gods. This would have been an irritant. He's saying this right to the Samaritan woman, though, not in the presence of a big crowd. Maybe you're like so many people that come to this very popular phrase, though, worship him in spirit and truth, and you think the primary application for this is what happens when we gather on Sundays and lift our voices in song or prayer or give our attention to the word of God. That we do, what we do as Christians on Sunday morning is really what this is talking about with worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm not here to pop that bubble, but I will let just a tiny bit of air out of it if you'll hang with me for a moment. Um, I believe that is helpful, and that is uh, not a big reach of application, but that's not the primary meaning of what's happening here, because that's kind of out of left field if you think about it. Jesus is talking to an unbeliever and pointing her toward what true belief in God looks like. He's talking to a non-believer who we know, we've, we've read ahead, right, who's going to become a believer. He's walking her through the kingdom, the gospel, this new and living way. I doubt in the middle of it, he's going to bring up, and by the way, let me tell you how to really get your praise on when you're back at the temple this Saturday. Like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the natural flow. Let me tell you what it means, and there can be, of course, several applications of it. But let's talk about what that means. Um, we're talking about Jesus being the living water. The woman doesn't know who to worship, where to worship, or how to worship, right? He, he's unpacking for her, watch this, wrong thinking about God. Because if she thought rightly about God, she wouldn't have five failed marriages in a rearview mirror. If she thought rightly about the covenant-keeping God, she would have trusted him to help her keep 
covenant. Jesus is pointing her to something that is really remarkable. Yes, as we gather together, let me acknowledge this, I believe that we should in fact worship God in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, right? It means, a lot of people say it means different things. I think the Holy Spirit of God should animate us in our worship. That means Jesus will be on our lips because that's what he does. He points us to Jesus. I, I, I'm not you know, advocating here for anything that looks like hyper-emotionalism. You've never uh, seen me lean or point you that way as your pastor. But I will say this, if we're worshiping God on his terms, the EKG ought to have a blip on it. Okay, he's the lover of our souls. This is a helpful application. We open our Bibles as the ultimate worship guide and we want the Holy Spirit to infuse our worship. That's good. There's nothing wrong or in error about that. But the context here, Jesus is pointing her to the spirit and truth that only he can bring. John 3, 31 through 34 that we handled a couple of weeks ago gave us the heads up for this. John said in John 3, 31 through 34, that Jesus had come from heaven and when he spoke, he spoke truth and he had the fullness of the spirit without limit. What's he saying to her? Jesus is describing to her salvation. She needs the truth of God and truth has a name and it's Jesus Christ. She needs the spirit of God it's the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so do we. If we're going to approach God on His terms, it has less to do, watch this, less to do with what it feels like on Sunday and everything to do with what God has revealed to us in His Word about who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. They that worship Him, you don't need a mountain to worship on. Because if you were worshiping, Jesus said later would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus will have a large dissertation later on how he's going to give the Holy Spirit and the office and function of the Holy Spirit. It's so beautiful. All of this works together. All of this is not only for a gospel encounter, but it's for us believers every single day of our lives. We turn from the lies and the errors of this world and we embrace the truth about Jesus. We turn from the spirit of the age which is anti-Christ from the word go and we receive the Holy Spirit and walk in newness of life because Christ is king. We worship God rightly because we are in the truth. We worship God rightly because the Holy Spirit is in us as the believers of God. Matt Carter and Josh Redberg do a good job helping summarize this here. And they say, Jesus is saying to her, I am salvation. True salvation makes people worshipers of God. The only way people turn from self-worship to God-worship, the only way people turn from rebellion to obedience is by embracing the truth about Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. This is the salvation I'm bringing. And it's living water. The last thing in our text this morning, it's so awesome that Jesus wanted to show us the way to life and then confronts and deals with our sin. And then the fact that uh, he leads us to a true and lasting relationship and encounter with God. But it's pretty important to be reminded that Jesus is God. 
And that's the exclamation point on this particular exchange. Now, they'll still talk about something. The disciples will come back and the next part of what we'll read next week. And, and there's fruit from this. And she'll say, come meet a man who told me everything I'd ever done. It's such a weird way to share the gospel, right? I'm a sinner. Let me tell you something, right? It's such a weird way. I love it. It's so profound to see that happen here. Uh, she hears what he's saying. Look at verses 25 through 26 of our text. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. What she's saying. I've been told so many things about marriage, about covenant. I've been told so many things about who God is and where to worship. And now you're telling me something that that's, that's stirring me in a way that's profound. But I know this, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear everything up. I'll have truth. I'll have truth when the Messiah gets here. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. This is not him pulling out a badge and putting a credential on. This is him changing her whole world by the revelation of who he is. This is our God and King, the lover of our souls at work right in front of us. She's saying when the Messiah comes, he'll clear it all up. Jesus says, you're talking about me. He could point the way to new life because he is the Lord, God Almighty. He is the Christ, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He could confront her in her sin with authority because he is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he could point her to true and lasting worship that results in an everlasting relationship with the God of the universe because he is Lord and he is Christ and he is the Messiah and his spirit will work in and through her. This encounter this morning, as we read this, as saints who have been saved for years, satisfied with Christ, I tell you what it ought to do for us. I believe an encounter like this should light our worship ablaze with the glory of God. I believe an encounter like this should remind us that we don't have to be confused about who God is or what He likes. He has told us in the perfect word of God. I believe an encounter like this reminds us that we have life from God flowing in us, and we'll get there some next week, but also flowing through us. Everywhere we go, we ought to spread life and light for the glory of God. When people come up to you and say, man, boy, you look great today, you ought to be able to say, it's all because of Jesus. And just see if the Lord opens the door for you. It's all right to say his name. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to be encouraged that Jesus knew everything about you. Every sin you'd ever committed, every deed you'd ever done, all those hateful things you had stored up and never had the courage to say. He knew all of that and he still met you. Maybe not at a well, but he met you in a place, confronted you in your sin, pointed you to the truth, invited you into his family because he's the way the truth and the life 
Jesus gives living water for those that will repent and believe and put their faith and trust in him. As Julia comes this morning, I just want to ask you, when's the last time you took a moment and thought back with gratitude and thanksgiving of when God transformed your life? Do you live about to spew living water on everybody around you because of how good God is and how good Jesus is? I mean, when you get backed into a corner, right? This is me acting. I stopped doing it in high school, you'll know why. But when you get backed into a corner and the world around you tries to squeeze you in to its mold, you know what ought to come out of us? Living water, not venom. Living water, not the pablum of this world or some cheap throwaway something. Living water is what he's put in us by his spirit and power. We've met Jesus at our own well and he's changed us so that we can be ambassadors of hope and life. What a God. What an amazing Savior. Let's pray this morning. Father, you are true and holy and divine and you are so amazing and we see so much texture here reminding us that you have called us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. It affects the way we spend our money, the way we treat our wives and husbands and children, the way that we work. It affects our ethic. It affects everything about us. We don't take our cues from this world. We take our cues from you and your word. Lord, teach us, fill us, guide us, lead us. Maybe as Julia plays right now, for just a moment, you'll take a moment to thank God for saving you, to thank God for working in your life, and to ask God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation so that when life squeezes you this week, and it probably will, that what comes out is living Let's pray. Let the church say amen. Let's stand together and sing.
Uh, it's been a glorious time in God's Word, and I'm looking forward to next week as we finish up this passage. And then after that is Palm Sunday. That's a special day in the life of Grace Covenant Church. Obviously a special day for the Church Universal, but extra special for us. It's our, I don't know if you say birthday or anniversary, it's both. So we're going to celebrate that with a meal together. And uh, for those of you that have not gotten to enjoy that with us yet, we will worship here as normal. And then we will uh, pause and reconvene at the Kniff home. And we'll give you directions to that and address to that. Um, we have at least one baptism, possibly two. Uh, and so I'm grateful for that. Looking forward to that. I pray for your pastor with regard to one of those. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, trying not to cry my way all over it. My little girl. There you go. I said it. Moving on. Okay. So um, that's going to be exciting. That's Palm Sunday coming up. And then the following week, of course, Resurrection Sunday right here. It's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, looking forward to it. This week, our memory verse, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Boy, this is big boy stuff, big girl stuff when you're talking about worshiping. This, is, um, this requires a lot. Let's look at it. And let's say it together out loud. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. That's a tough one. In Matthew 5, 23-24, that's the memory verse that you'll work on this week. So you have that ready for next Sunday. Well, let me dismiss you again with our benediction, Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Go this week knowing that you have living water inside of you. And let some ooze out on somebody else, okay? God bless you. Have a great week.